Hearing dark stories in a podcast is one thing, but living in darkness is quite another. If you're living with depression and trying to deal with it using alcohol, illegal drugs, or other bad influences, please pick up the phone right now and get help. 800-831-1560. Every 12 minutes, someone dies of an overdose. Every 6 minutes, from alcohol abuse. Call 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, you can even take a leave of absence from your job and still keep it. 800-831-1560. Welcome to the Weekend Archives of Weird Darkness. This archive episode was originally aired February 22, 2018. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. As the trio of P-51 Mustangs approached the object, it was clear that whatever they saw was at an altitude of at least 30,000 feet, placing it way above the capabilities of the Mustang's design. Both of Thomas Mantle's wingmen broke off pursuit at around 22,500 feet and began to head back to the base. Mantell ignored all orders and encouragement to return with the rest of his squadron. As experienced a pilot as Mantell was, it seemed inconceivable that he would make a basic and fundamental error of judgment such as this. High altitudes like that drastically increase the likelihood of hypoxia. Something other than a high-altitude weather balloon compelled Mantell to continue his pursuit. Perhaps it was the planet Venus. However, it was not something that anyone could possibly see in the middle of the day anywhere in the world. Being as patriotic as the next man, Thomas Mantell almost certainly considered this to be of a significant threat to America. Thus, it was his sworn duty to protect his country. It is reasonable to assume that at some point during his pursuit, Mantell began to feel overcome with the effects of hypoxia and maybe even spatial orientation and passed out before he could counter those effects. Unable to correct his flight path, the Mustang headed higher and higher before the engine eventually became starved of oxygen as well. The Mustang probably continued on until gravity took hold of it and made its pilot the first recognized victim of the UFO age. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness, where you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future shows. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Most of us would say it's difficult to understand how someone who was responsible for deliberately killing hundreds of people could be elevated to the status of a hero. However, those who speak in favor of Gaia Tafana say her motives and actions were justified. 
during the last 300 years, at least 200 cases of spontaneous human combustion have been registered around the world. What is causing this to happen? And can it be stopped? Can an ambulance be haunted? The story I share with you might convince you it is. What led Captain Thomas Mantell on a chase to his death? Plus, an original story from one of my weirdos by the name of George. An amazing story that he's dedicating to another weirdo. And I'll share that with you later on the show as well. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Spontaneous Human Combustion, or SHC, is a well-known but unexplained phenomenon when the human body bursts into flames without any external source of flammable ignition. During the last 300 years, at least 200 cases of SHC have been registered around the world, but it's not exactly correct. The SHC phenomenon was mentioned much earlier, for example, by a Roman poet and philosopher, Titus Lucretius Carus, who lived from 98 to 55 BC. Throughout history, many more cases of spontaneous human combustion could have occurred, but they have never been officially recorded. A very popular and long-existing theory says that the victims of spontaneous combustion fires drank lots of alcohol, which, as a flammable liquid, could cause the combustion process. But how do we explain SHC victims who never were heavy drinkers. Other theories blame obesity, increased body weight caused by excessive accumulation of fat, static electricity, and divine intervention. On April 4, 1731, the Countess of Cessna, Italy was found burnt to death on the floor of her bedroom. All that was left of the Countess's body were her stockinged legs and the rest of her head. Also, greasy soot was again found like in other similar cases. Many other spontaneous human combustion incidents inspired Charles Dickens, the great English novelist, who described the phenomenon in his novel Bleak House. Almost immediately, he was attacked by critics who considered SHC acts as incapable of occurring and rather an irrational belief. Dickens, who carefully researched the phenomenon based on about 30 cases, could easily defend himself. There is a certain pattern in all spontaneous human combustion incidents, no matter whether the case is old or modern. Police and fire experts usually find burned corpses except for the extremities and no burned furniture. Also, the alcoholism theory seems to be insufficient to explain all mysterious cases. One minute they may be relaxing in a chair, the next they erupt into a fireball. Jets of blue fire shoot from their bodies like flames from a blowtorch and within half an hour they are reduced to a pile of ash. Typically the legs remain unscathed, sticking out grotesquely from the smoking cinders. Nearby objects, a pile of newspapers on the armrest for example, are untouched, according to a Cambridge professor, Brian J. Ford. 
Professor Ford is a research biologist and author of more than 30 books, most about cell biology and microscopy, but he has turned his attention to the mechanisms behind why people would explode. The most recent SHC case was that of an Irish coroner, 76-year-old Michael Faherty, who died on December 22, 2010. West Galloway coroner Siren McLaughlin recorded the cause of death as spontaneous human combustion. This is the first reported case of SHC in Ireland's history. The fire had been confined to the sitting room, the BBC reported. The only damage was to the body, which was totally burnt, the ceiling above him and the floor underneath him. No accelerant was found nor any signs of foul play. Professor Ford wanted to disprove the alcoholism theory along with the so-called wick effect suggested by London coroner Gavin Thurston in 1961. Thurston had described how human fat burns at about 250 C, but if melted, it will combust on a wick, such as clothes or other material, at room temperatures. I felt it was time to test the realities, so we marinated pork abdominal tissue in ethanol for a week. Even when cloaked in gauze moistened with alcohol, it would not burn. Alcohol is not normally present in our tissues, but there is one flammable constituent in the body that can greatly increase the concentration. The body creates acetone, which is highly flammable. A range of conditions can produce ketosis, in which acetone is formed, including alcoholism, fat-free dieting, diabetes, and even teething, Ford explained. So we marinated pork tissue in acetone rather than ethanol. This was used to make scale models of humans which we clothed and set alight. They burned to ash within half an hour. For the first time, a feasible cause of human combustion has been experimentally demonstrated. Does that solve the issue? Does that answer the questions? Not all of them. We'll let you decide. I spent my entire career working for a small fire department in northern Nevada. In 1998, we worked 24-hour shifts, so we slept at the station. Over the years, many people passed in the back of our ambulance, and there were lots of little sounds or things where they shouldn't be. But this is the strangest thing that happened. While finishing chores one night, I walked around one of the ambulances to ensure that it was ready to go. It was a quiet night with no calls. The next morning, an angry firefighter stopped me to complain that the reserve ambulance looked like a dump. I laughed, knowing he was joking, as I had ensured its readiness not 12 hours prior. When I asked him to show me what I had missed, he opened the rear doors, and I stood there in utter shock and confusion. The gurney and floor around it was trashed, littered with bandage wrappers, open IV packaging, and other medical supplies. It looked like we had just run a full code. Even the defibrillator was on. My first thought was that I had somehow slept through an incident, but that couldn't be since there were only two of us on duty at the time. My partner had already left, so I cleaned everything up and went home. 
When I told him the story later, he didn't believe me and was sure I was messing with him. When the other guys corroborated the story, he was still skeptical. This was in 1998. To this day, I never figured out what happened that night. That was, without a doubt, the strangest thing I ever experienced at work. Barely six months after the Roswell incident and barely a week into the brand new year of 1948, one of the most sinister of all UFO encounters took place a stone's throw from Fort Knox in Kentucky, the Thomas Mantell UFO incident. It was lunchtime when several witnesses on the ground reported an object often described as large, circular, and metallic, measuring approximately 300 feet in diameter to Kentucky State Police. From certain vantage points, it was described as moving in a westerly direction. Godman Airfield was contacted, and within half an hour, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base confirmed that they had no aerial traffic in the area. Sergeant Quinton Blackwell and Base Commander Colonel Guy Hicks were two of the three witnesses in the Godman Air Traffic Control Tower that also saw this object, as well as watching this unknown object change colors from red to white Hicks said he saw an umbrella-shaped craft that appeared to be a quarter the size of a full moon. Four P-51 Mustangs were en route to Standiford Airfield when they were asked to investigate the sighting. The airborne squadron were under the command of Captain Thomas Mantell. Even though the 25-year-old managed to secure his status as pilot in the middle of the Second World War, he was already an experienced pilot with the newly formed Kentucky Air National Guard having logged over 2,000 hours of flight time. Alongside him were a pair of wingmen. On his right was Lieutenant Albert Clements, and on his left was B.A. Hammond. Clements was the only pilot of the three that was equipped with oxygen. The fourth pilot was not able to pursue an investigation as his Mustang was low on fuel. He returned to base, while the other three continued onwards and upwards. As the trio approached the object, it was clear that whatever they saw was at an altitude of at least 30,000 feet, placing it way above the capabilities of the Mustang's design. Both of Mantell's wingmen broke off pursuit at around 22,500 feet and began to head back to the base. Mantell ignored all orders and encouragement to return with the rest of his squadron. As experienced a pilot as Mantell was, it seemed inconceivable that he would make a basic and fundamental error of judgment such as this. High altitudes like that drastically increase the likelihood of hypoxia. Something other than a high-altitude weather balloon compelled Mantell to continue his pursuit. Perhaps it was the planet Venus. However, it was not something that anyone could possibly see in the middle of the day anywhere in the world. Being as patriotic as the next man, Thomas Mantell almost certainly considered this to be of a significant threat to America. Thus, it was his sworn duty to protect his country. It is reasonable to assume that at some point during his pursuit, Mantell began to feel overcome with the effects of hypoxia and maybe even spatial orientation, and passed out before he could counter those effects. Unable to correct his flight path, the Mustang headed higher and higher 
before the engine eventually became starved of oxygen too. The Mustang probably continued on until gravity took hold of it and made its pilot the first recognized victim of the UFO age. The watch that Mantell wore stopped at 3.18 p.m., and investigators took this to be the moment of impact. Ever since the wreckage was discovered close to the border between Kentucky and Tennessee, just outside a local farm near Franklin, the belief surrounding what happened has been documented between the official account and the unofficial. Project Sign was the forerunner of Blue Book, and it was concluded that Thomas Mantell became embroiled in a top-secret mission known as Operation Skyhook. They speculated perhaps he pushed both himself and his aircraft beyond endurance chasing a Project Balloon, of which he would not have had any foreknowledge. The official findings either didn't know about or chose to disregard the many eyewitness accounts of the Mustang's final moments in the air. Glenn Mays was one of those that saw the Mustang in the air. He said that the plane circled three times and gave him the impression that the pilot wasn't aware what the plane was actually doing. Then there was an explosion. The wife of Joe Phillips, owner of the farm close to the plane's final resting place, also reported hearing an explosion. Even though she was indoors at the time, she also said she heard the engine. In her opinion, it was not working as it should. The most damning testimony came from the USAF's own investigator, Captain James Dusler. Speaking from his retirement home in England during 1997, he revealed the scene he saw at the site of the crash. The Mustang came down in a wooded area and none of the surrounding trees showed any sign of damage. Dusler reckoned that the wreckage was placed there and did not crash. Both wings had broken off, as had the tail section. Each lay a short distance from the fuselage. The fuselage was undamaged and intact. One of the propeller blades was embedded in the ground, but oddly it didn't show any damage consistent with operation when it came into contact with the ground. As a former air crash investigator, Dusler knew what to look for and what it meant. He didn't believe that the propeller blades were not in use when the crash occurred. The crash site is not the only peculiarity to this fatal incident. Mantell was determined to chase down this object, but he kept in radio contact during the pursuit. Mantell had no idea what he was looking at, but did describe what he saw. He reported back that this metallic object was massive and that sunlight may have been reflecting off of it. The Thomas Mantell UFO was traveling at half the speed he was, but the craft always remained ahead of him and above his position. In the operations room of Scott Air Force Base in Belleville, Illinois, Richard Miller was monitoring the communications. He claims that he heard Mantell refer to occupants. He also added that the morning after, intelligence officers from Wright-Patterson turned up and demanded that they hand over all materials on the crash. Miller, like all other personnel, had little choice but to comply. However, he insisted that the officers admitted that they had already completed the investigation. Many ufologists consider the Thomas Mantell UFO incident to be one of the more significant cases on record. The official cause of the crash may be what actually happened, but it is conjecture. Theorists have proposed other causes over the years. Speculation about a deliberate hostile act to shoot down the Mustang emerged. Other people talked about an encounter with a force field or an electromagnetic pulse. 
perhaps what Richard Miller heard is true and the USAF are just not telling. Murder by beings unknown or a tragic accident? What exactly was the Thomas Mantell UFO? Well, it's the new year, and that means New Year's resolutions, right? So what's your New Year's resolution? To lose weight? To exercise more? Maybe to give up a habit? Well, doing any of those things is going to be a lot easier if you have a good night's sleep first. And now's the perfect time if you've not already tried a MyPillow, because right now you can get two premium and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. Now, if you've been a weirdo for any length of time, you know I do not promote anything here unless I believe in it myself. I'm already using a MyPillow. I've got one of their seat cushions, which helped me immensely with some back issues I was having uh, in the office. And I also have one of their Go Anywhere pillows, which also helps out with the back problems. And I use it in the family room on my recliner, just lounging around. And now, in the mail, on its way, is a mattress topper for me. I, I just want to try it. But now is the perfect time to try my pillow. Get two premium my pillows and two go anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. All you have to do is visit mypillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Click on the four pack special when you're there. Mypillow.com, click on the four pack special and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800 945 7192. That's 800-945-7192. Ask for the four-pack special and use the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. To what lengths will someone go in order to survive? Does the survival instinct override their conscience and allow them to commit not only murder but also the taboo act of cannibalism? What happens when a person crosses the line from dark fantasy to real-life acts of brutal rape, murder, and cannibalism? Are these people driven by a desire so insatiable that they're incapable of controlling it? Murderous Minds Volume 3 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escape the Headlines is the latest offering in a series that takes you inside the lives of killers who committed cold-blooded murder for a glimpse at events that drove them to kill. Authored within a historical context, each chapter is an unbelievable venture inside the dark and twisted world of real cannibal killers whose names and crimes might not be familiar to you. By weaving a tale in which dark fantasies become reality, this audiobook invites you to see life from a perspective few ever witness, from that of the killer Along with a historical look at cannibalism through the ages, these stories beg the listener to answer the question, was the murderer committing cannibalism because he was incapable of resisting the urge to kill and consume, or is the explanation simply pure evil? Murderous Minds, Volume 3, written by Ryan Becker and Curtis Giles Vasey, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com.
as the snow blustered outside. He pulled his woolen coat over his shoulders and prepared himself to trudge out into the brisk cold of the moonlit darkness. He didn't prepare a lamp as the bright light of the moon was adequate for the journey. A long journey, though it would be. He shoved the letter into his pocket and placed his hand on it to assure himself it was still there, feeling the words written on it inside touching his heart. As he pushed the door open on its creaky hinges against the snow built up outside, he placed one foot in front of the other with his head bent down. The cold air and wind bristled past his ears, and he began his journey. There was no trodden path, so each footstep was new. The snow crunched before him as he looked over his shoulder. He realized that he was indeed alone on this forlorn night. Farther and farther as he made his way into the forest, he saw the shadows of the naked trees as if they were aboding shadowing ghosts looming over him. With his hand in his pocket, all he could think of was his precious E. Through their correspondence, E was the only name she gave him, and G was the only name he gave in return. The letter felt good in his hand and gave him warmth, warmth inside if nothing else. He wished he had a horse, but he didn't have one, so every footfall were just tiny steps toward his destination. It's so cold, he thought, and I have so far to go. I must get there before daylight. The moon was waning. I really needed to hurry. She told me to get there before daylight, before her father came home from a business trip. This was the time, you see, the time she told me in the letter to meet her. As I clutched the letter in my hand in my pocket, I began to walk faster. I still had a few mountaintops to cross, but just a few more miles. Finally, I came to a path that led up a hill that leveled off, and I was amazed as it opened up into a clearing with a majestic castle in front of me. This I could see clearly as the moonlit shone on the white stone facade. I was nervous now. I slowly made my way up to the double doorways and crept up the steps till I made my way to the giant door knockers. Should I use them? No, I chose not to. I walked my way around until I saw a coal chute. I was amazed that things seemed to be recently cared for. I weighed my options knowing that I wasn't supposed to be there. I chose the coal chute. I lifted the heavy metal lid and eased my way down into the dark, dirty abyss. As I slid my way to the bottom and found my way to the mound of coal at the bottom, I realized I had nowhere to go but up. I tried to dust myself off, but that was impossible. I was cold and dirty and black. I looked forward and saw some stairs, narrow, dark, and dirty. I climbed the stairs until I came to a door that entered into the lower floor. As I opened the door, I was amazed to see a grand room with a fire built in the fireplace and burning. The warmth and soft glow was so inviting. I wanted to lay down right there in front of the fireplace and warm my cold and weary bones, but I knew I had to go on. Across an expansive marble floor was a spiral staircase so inviting I could not resist. As the fire crackled, 
My head turned towards the stairs, and my body seemed to glide towards them without even a second thought. Up the stairs I went. When I reached the top, I knew automatically which way to go. I felt a presence. She had drawn me there. I opened the door and entered the room. There it was, a most beautiful mahogany coffin. I didn't know what to do. I crept my way towards it and stared for a moment, then tapped on the top. The sun was beginning to peek up just about that time, and just as I opened the lid, there she laid, pretty as could be. Suddenly, there was the sound of a herd of horses, and I closed the lid quickly and fled back down the stairs, back into the coal bin as her father came home, rushing to get to his daytime abode. That coal is black and cold. I laid on that pile until all the sounds went away. Hours I must have laid there. All I could think about was the letter that was in my pocket. My E. I clung to it the whole time, the only warmth I had. As the sun slowly began to rise, I peeked out the tiny opening of the coal chute and saw the dew begin to rise as the sun came up, making an early morning fog. In the distance were some apple trees. I was beginning to get hungry. Should I venture out and try to get a few? No. I remember, she said, only come by the light of the moon. It seemed like an eternity, and I fell asleep and laid there until the sun went down again. Once I heard the horses being bridled and hitched again, comfort came over me. I reached into my pocket to remember once again why I was here. E. That's why. And I remembered that she said, Gee, please come. Now, here I am. Why? Against every fiber in my being, why am I here? I am here because she beckons. Her father is an ominous man, worldly and intimidating. I know I should not be here. When I woke up, the sun was setting again, the light quickly drifting away. I climbed the stairs once again, past the fire that was still burning. Up the stairs and back to that box. There it was. I touched the lid. I tapped on it. Then I raised the lid. But E wasn't there. I felt in my pocket just to check for the letter to see if this was real. It was still there. Bats began to fly around my head. Bats? Are you kidding me? Where did these things come from? I swarped and swatted and tried to flail them away. In the midst of my preoccupation, I turned, and there she stood. The bats were suddenly gone, but there she stood in her glorious beauty. I was aghast, yet captivated. Never had I seen such a stunning creature, the epitome of beauty. Those teeth. Just as I knew she would, she embraced me and gently placed her fangs into my neck. Now I was complete. As I awoke the next morning, I looked outside the window, and hearing her father's horses upon their return, those apple trees had a whole new meaning to me.
most of us would say it's difficult to understand how someone who was responsible for deliberately killing hundreds of people could be elevated to the status of a hero. However, those who speak in favor of Gaia Tofana say her motives and actions were justified. Gaia Tofana, who lived from 1620 to 1659, poisoned 600 men, but she only targeted one specific group of men whom she believed had to die. Her famous poison, Aqua Tofana, named after her, was impossible to trace during an autopsy. Considering she is one of the deadliest female serial killers in history, it is surprising how little there is information about Gaia Tofana. There are no portraits of her, and much about her past is unclear. Based on what is known, Gaia Tofana was born in Palermo around 1620. She had a daughter, but whether she was married or not has not been determined. The use of toxins and poisons in the Middle Ages and Renaissance was very common, and there were those who made their living as professional poisoners. The most common poisons were cantrella, strychnine, hemlock, belladonna, foxglove, aquatofana, and arsenic. Gaia Tofana's marketing idea was to sell poison to unhappy wives. In those days, when marriage was prearranged and there was no possibility of divorce, there were plenty of women who wanted to get rid of their husbands. Many complaining women came to Gaia telling horrible stories about poverty, abuse at home, and all kinds of cruel treatments. Gaia felt sorry for the women and wanted to help them get an early divorce by becoming widows. She started to sell cosmetics in southern Italy, and one of her most popular products was the poison Aqua Tofana that she disguised as a powdered makeup. Aqua Tofana was a mixture of arsenic, lead, and belladonna, all deadly poisonous substances. Whether she or her mother, Tofania di Adamo, came up with the recipe is unknown, but four drops of the substance were enough to kill any man. Although her plan was to sell the poison to low-status women, the fact remains that any woman could buy Aqua Tofana, and the business was highly lucrative. Tofana's poison was tasteless, odorless, colorless, and sold hidden in small vials with the image of St. Nicholas of Bari. The small bottle could be placed on women's dressing tables next to other lotions and perfumes without raising suspicion from anyone. In the 1650s, one of Tofana's clients realized she was about to do something horrible. She had bought a bottle of Aqua Tofana and was prepared to poison her husband but at the last minute she stopped her husband from eating the soup. The suspicious man forced his wife to tell the truth, and papal authorities learned about Tafana's poison. Beautiful Tafana was very popular, and the public protected her from apprehension. She sought and was granted sanctuary in a church, but when rumors spread that she had poisoned the water around Rome, the police forced their way into the church and dragged Tafana in for questioning. During torture, Tafana confessed she had killed 600 men with her poisons in Rome between 1633 and 1651. In July 1659, Tafana was executed along with her daughter, Girolama Spira, who was also selling poisons, and three of her aides. After her death, her body was thrown over the wall of the church 
that had provided her with sanctuary. Aquatafana became so famous that in 1791, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart claimed that he was being poisoned with Gaia Tafana's invention. From his deathbed, Mozart declared, I feel definitely that I will not last much longer. I am sure that I have been poisoned. He went on to claim, Someone has given me Aquatafana and calculated the precise time of my death. There is no evidence that Mozart died by being poisoned with Aquatafana, but Gaetafana's deadly recipe was still being discussed over a hundred years after her death. If you like Weird Darkness, you might also like some of the audiobooks I've narrated. You can hear free samples of all of them on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron for as little as $1 per month and get exclusive patron-only content for as little as $5 per month. Learn more by clicking the link in the show notes or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. Another way to show your support is to share a link directly to this episode on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and other social media and ask your friends and family to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true and you can find links in the show notes. She poisoned 600 men was written by Ellen Lloyd for Ancient Pages. The Unexplained Phenomenon of Spontaneous Human Combustion was posted at Message to Eagle. Ambulance Turmoil was posted on the Ghosts and Ghouls website. The Thomas Mantell UFO Encounter was written by Les Hewitt for Historic Mysteries. And the fictional original story, The Woman Known as E, was written by fellow weirdo George Boggs, and he dedicates it to Ginny known as Elvira Dark Six on YouTube. Music in this episode is by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at facebook.com slash shadows symphony. And if you like news, politics, and laughs, be sure to check out my comedy news podcast at dailydoseofweirdnews.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorant Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. 
800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362. Have you heard about the hemp oil explosion? It's exploding for good reason. It's beneficial in a wide range of applications, including health, anti-aging, nutrition, pain relief, hair growth as a vitamin supplement, energy and focus, stress relief, better sleep. It's even useful for the furry family members in your home. And even better, it's all natural. I'm currently using a hemp oral spray as an appetite suppressant, and it's helped me immensely to keep the late-night junk food cravings at bay. If you want to check it out for yourself, look for CTFO on the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. 